You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we are in your presence. We bow to your authority tonight. We recognize that we need to be taught. We're many, many, many ways ignorant and unlearned. Jesus was our example. He demonstrated. He told us. But Lord, even then, we sometimes we're so slow of heart that we don't understand. But tonight, Lord, we're on a, we want to know what that reward is that you've offered and what that work is and the relationship between the two. So I pray tonight specifically that your Holy Spirit would open up our understanding that we would be able to see clearly from Scripture what that reward is, what that work is, and then, Lord, I pray that you would put it in our hearts to do the work that we might receive the reward. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in order for us to discover what that reward is and what that work is, I have to do a little review. Review that each one of you know, more than likely. Some more than others, perhaps. But I want to start by going back to the beginning. Now, it's true that there are a lot of theories and ideas about the beginning of time. But to a Christian who has embraced the Bible as the source of authority, a Christian doesn't have to wonder. If they've embraced the Bible as the authority of God's Word and explains the truth of where we came from, where we are, why we're here, and where we're going in the future, then God gives us a clear line of understanding. So tonight... We're going to be coming from the Scripture as our authority. And by the way, I would say this, you know, the Bible was not written to prove that God existed or that He's Creator. The Bible was written under the premise and understanding that God is God. He's the Creator. In fact, the very first chapter of the Bible, the very first verse says, In the beginning, God. But He didn't just do nothing. In the beginning, God did what? He created. So in the very beginning, God created. And the Bible goes on to say that without Him, nothing exists that is currently in existence. So if He created everything from nothing, then He has to be the authority of everything and the owner of everything and the king of the universe. Is that right? But God established a foundation by which he would build his kingdom. And that foundation is his law. And when I mention God's law, it's more than likely that in our minds we think of a moral law, Ten Commandments. And the moral law is the overarching umbrella of all laws. But there are other laws. There are health laws. 
There are laws that govern the creation that God is adding to and is creating. There are laws of physics, laws of mathematics. One law that we can play around with is the law of gravity. But it's a law. And when God's creatures all operate within the confines of that law, everything happens not simultaneously, but um, in in a way in which there's harmony and one accord. The motivation behind God is His love. But I want you to know something. God's law and God's love are so intimately connected that they cannot be separated. You see, it's God's law that defines what love is. It's God's law that explains and shows and describes what God's God's love is. So if you separate out God's law from His love, you don't have God's law or His love. You've got something else. See, God's love motivates us into action, motivates His creatures into action. He pours His love out upon all of His creatures. And as a result, they look back at God and they they want to return some kind of affection to God. And so they look, what can we do to please God? And then they think of His law. I want to do everything He said. His very desire is what my desire is. I want to do it. And so out of this great love for God, they want to obey everything He asked them to do. Love is something, by definition, that has got to be shared. Love has to be shared. That's, that's what it is. So God created creatures so that He could share an existence with. But he didn't just make creatures and say, well, I wonder what I would do with this one. Well, let me give them an option. What would you like to do? No. God has a plan and a purpose for everything he does. So every creature that he made, he had a role for them to play in his creation, his universe. And because of their great love for God, their greatest desire was to do exactly what God created them for. And when they did exactly what God wanted them to do, there was great contention. There was great contentment and satisfaction and joy. And, and oh, they so loved to be able to serve. That was their greatest desire, was to serve others. And in that desire to serve others, there was a, a, a spirit of cooperation. All because they accepted the love of God, which is connected infinitely and cannot be separated from His law. God created one creature that the Bible even calls us, tells us what His name is. He was the highest, He was the creature that had the most talent and power and authority of any creature in the universe, and His name was Lucifer. He had the privilege of standing in the very presence of God. God revealed more of his love and his purposes to this creature than any other creature 
And then that creature had the privilege of being able to go out and share what he knew about God and what God had shared with him to others. And while he was a recipient of God's love, a willing recipient of God's love, he had perfect contentment. Totally satisfied with his position that God had created for him. But over time, and we don't even know how this happened, but over time the thought came through his mind, you know, I wonder what it would be like to be in a position that God didn't give me. And then instantly that thought was repelled because the Holy Spirit is there to help all of us. And the Holy Spirit reminds him, that's not a good idea. You need to be satisfied with what God has called you to do. Oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. Thought came back, and this time he wasn't quite as quick to throw it out. And then the thought came back until finally he started dwelling on this thought of what it would be like to be in a position that God didn't put him in. You know, we have that same problem with roles that we have. God gives us a role, and we look and think, well, I wonder what it would be like to be in somebody else's role. And Lucifer was the first one to experience that. And the more he started to leave himself in that position that he wanted, the less satisfied he was in the position he had. Until finally, he wasn't just less satisfied, he was dissatisfied. And he didn't realize it, but as he became more dissatisfied, he started to resist the love of God. And as he resisted the love of God, he started to separate himself from the love. It's the love of God that draws us to him. And he started to push back until finally he said, "Ah, I'm rejecting God as my authority. I should be the authority. Look at the talent I have. Look what I can do. And that dissatisfaction, that rejection of God's love led to rebellion. It wasn't open at first. But I want you to notice something. Sin was first found in Lucifer. And the very core of sin is a rejection of God and rebellion against Him. And you think that through for just a minute. If, if, I'm, if I'm in love with God and the desire of my heart is to obey Him and His love is, is so intertwined with His law that they can't be separated and I love God, what do I also love? His law. What is my greatest desire? To do His will. But if I reject God, not only have I rejected His love, but I've rejected His law. And now... I don't care about his law, and I'll be glad to break his law. Lucifer started to sow doubt in the minds of his fellow angels. You know, I I don't think God really cares that much about you. No. In fact, you know, he created you to be his servant. Did you know that? Why? God's self-serving. That's what he is. He's selfish. Do you know if God God threw a law on you and he makes you obey that law? You have to do it. Those, Those accusations are circling on this earth. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. It just happened there first. 
but in the very presence of God. And we can't understand this. But in the very presence of God, where an angel could look at God and look at Satan, who was Lucifer, the light bearer, who became the adversary in competition with God, now Satan, his adversary, his competition, they could look at him and say, well, should I serve God or should I... Is Lucifer have a point here? All of the angels had experienced the love of God firsthand. All of the angels had had an opportunity to talk with God firsthand. All of the angels had had the opportunity to experience the joy of service. Didn't realize it was a law. It was a desire of their heart. And in that very presence, some chose to reject God. You know, love is something that doesn't force. It invites. It draws. It encourages. And it gives a choice. And so God gave a choice to all of the angels. Who will you serve? But I want you to notice something. This is a test for every creature, and it is the final test for every creature. You are going to be tested. I'm going to be tested. The angels were tested. Who will you serve? And at some point in time, God's drawn a line. And God draws the line over obedience. Why? Because God's love and His law cannot be separated. And so if you obey God's law because you love Him, you have chosen to be on His side and you've accepted Him as your King. But if you're not serving God because you love Him, you're serving Him for whatever other reason or you're not serving Him all, at all, now you're rejected God as King of your life. And the angels had an opportunity and there was war in heaven, the Bible says. It doesn't say how long it lasted, but it certainly, there wasn't any fatalities. And I believe it happened that quickly. And the angels were cast out of heaven. So they went around the universe trying to figure out just exactly who else would be sympathetic to them. And they found a listening ear here on this earth. You see, when Adam chose to disobey God, he also chose to rebel against God's authority. And he became then rebellious. Now the whole universe was wondering, what is God going to do with this rebellion? What's it going to... It, the harmony of heaven was disrupted because now you have a group of people that aren't abiding by, abiding by the laws. And so now there's all kinds of confusion going on. So God demonstrates that nothing sneaks up on him. He knows the end from the beginning. And God develops now. No, he doesn't develop. It had already been developed. God now reveals a plan that had been in existence from eternity. 
a plan called the plan of salvation. It wasn't for the angels because the angels already knew the love of God and experienced it. But it was unveiled for humans because humans didn't have the privilege of knowing God intimately as the angels did. And so God has a three-step plan of the plan of salvation. First step is very simple. God says, I'm going to demonstrate, I'm going to reveal, I'm going to show my creatures my love. The whole universe will look on, but I'm going to show the depths at which I am willing to go because I love them. And now you have the picture of the cross. Jesus didn't just come and die on a cross. Jesus came and became a creature, the creator, becoming a creature, mind-boggling. And then he allowed creatures to abuse him. All the while trying to demonstrate in all of the abuse the love of God. And he didn't try, he did. And then when he died, he offered his life for ours. That's the first part. The second part was he wanted to give you now a choice because now you experienced the love of God. Now you knew firsthand what the love of God was. Now you can make an intelligent choice. Second part of that was to separate those who rejected him from those who accepted him. And he's in the process of that right now. This very night he's in the process. Paul tells us in Philippians 1.6 that he's going to finish the work that he's begun in us until the day of Jesus' coming. That means until Jesus comes, he's going to continue to work in us his work. And when he comes, he's promised that it'll be finished. The third part is called God's strange act because it's where he eradicates sin from the universe and all its defects, gone, finished. Rebellion will never rise the second time. Why? Because of God's great demonstration of his love. There is no more questions about his love. The cross answers every question that could be raised about God's love. So throughout eternity, Jesus will have those nail scars in his hands, his feet, and his side. A living memorial of his love. Boy, sin really does a lot of damage. Because sin takes... And it turns all of the values and priorities of heaven upside down. Reverses the whole order. Let me give you two examples. In heaven, positions of authority are greater opportunities for service. The person who has the greatest position is the greatest servant. God is the greatest servant of all. But on this earth, with Satan's now thinking and the impact by separating that love 
from God's law. He didn't end up with love. He ended up with something called lust, self-gratifying. Not others-directed, but self-gratifying. And now because of that desire, he wants to be served. Turns it right around. The greatest positions on this earth are the ones who are served the most. Second one example that I'll give you is this. In heaven, the greatest value in heaven is life. Things are not that important. On this earth, it's turned right around because self wants more. Even if it has some, it wants more. And eventually it wants what you have. Self is never satisfied. So in, in this earth, take a value such as gold. There are some people who will lie, steal, cheat, and kill for gold. But in heaven, gold is what the streets are made out of. Things are not important, that important in heaven. They're secondary to life. Satan now intertwines something with our greed, our selfishness, our lust for things. He entwines something in there because he knows that it will be a barb that will catch you for the rest of your life. And you can't free yourself from it. Only God can. You see, it goes like this. Satan knows that you can't help yourself. You want, and you want more, and you want more and more. And so he knows you're going to want to acquire all kinds of things and then add on top of that more things. And so things have become very valuable to you. And he knows that God wants to give you the free gift of his grace. And so he wants to turn you from God. And so he puts this little principle out for the world. Nothing of value in this world is for free. You buy something at a, a real inexpensive price and you get out and use it and it breaks and what do you say? Now you get what you pay for. So then Satan comes in and he says, ha see, if you want this grace from God, you better earn it from him because God's not going to give it to you for free. It's going to cost you. You're going to have to earn his favor. And if you earn his favor, then God will give you something. He'll give you perhaps riches. Or maybe he'll give you health. But if you haven't earned God's favor, you may be poor. Or you may get sick. This is a philosophy that Satan has laid out from the foundation of sin. Job had to encounter it. The whole book of Job is written to refute that. Well, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees embraced that. They taught it. They modeled it. The common people picked it up pretty well. Even Jesus' own disciples were influenced by it. So Jesus 
looked for a way, an opportunity to address this and to set it straight. And the opportunity came in Matthew 19. It came when a young man, a rich young ruler, came up to Jesus and he said, hey, good, good, good master. What should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and he says, why are you calling me good? There's none good but God. Do you recognize that I'm God? And he says, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to enter into eternal life, then keep the commandments. And this rich young ruler thought to himself, commandments, I keep those already. And he says, which commandments? Perhaps there's one I missed. And Jesus now starts to expound upon the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth commandment. And then he drops back to the fifth commandment, and then he summarizes the tenth commandment. And that is to love your neighbor as yourself. And the rich young ruler thought to himself, oh, wait a minute, I've done all that. But the Holy Spirit is right there to drive home the point in which Jesus is trying to draw. And this man realizes there's something lacking. And so he says to him, what do I lack? What, what more do I lack? And Jesus says, well, if you really want to be perfect, we don't like that word, but if, we really, if you really want to be perfect, here in verse 21, chapter 19, go sell what you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Holy Spirit's knocking on his door right now. If any man hears my voice, opens the door of your heart, Jesus said he's going to come in. This man thought about that for a little bit, and he said, wait a minute, all that stuff i got to get rid of? Oh, look at all the good stuff I can do. I can help this person. I can't help him anymore if I do that. He starts to rationalize everything away, and how much do I really value being with this teacher anyway? How much do I really know him? The Bible says that he turned away sorrowfully. How many of us don't understand the invitation that God gives us to come and follow him? How many of us do not understand the invitation that Jesus says where I in them and you in me, Father, that we might be one? How many of us really value that? He turns away, and Jesus then makes a comment. He says to the disciples, it's very, very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the disciples knew the teaching of the Pharisees, and they looked at each other, You mean if somebody who has the favor of God has a hard time getting heaven, then who can be saved? What Jesus is really saying to him was simply, 
You can't operate under the principles of heaven and have a selfish heart. Can't do it. It's impossible. You can't practice the values of heaven with a selfish heart. That's what he's saying. Problems, not in things. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not money. Then Peter expresses for the group what they're thinking. They heard what Jesus said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. Well, they gave up all. So the question's on their mind. Peter turns to Jesus and he said, well, well Lord, we gave up everything. What are we going to get? Now, we might ch chuckle and laugh about that, but I want to tell you within our own heart, we've already asked that question. We give up something for the Lord, and we think, well, Lord, you ought to do something nice for me then. Something bad happens to you. Lord, where are you? Don't you know I was faithful? Don't you know I pay my tithe? Don't you know I, I do all these other... Lord, where are you? We're no different. We have the spirit of a hireling, someone who works for their wages and expects wages. So Jesus now tells a story, a parable. And in this parable, he has two focuses, two main points for telling this parable. First of all, they have the misconception of how God relates to humans. And so he wants to, to demonstrate the manner in which God deals with his servants. And second, he wants to share with them what the spirit or the attitude that God desires his servants to have. That's the reason for this parable. It's found in the very next chapter, chapter 20. It's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And in this story, to set the, the stage of this story, if a person wasn't a property owner and they were just a common laborer, they would go to a certain place in town, wherever that town square was, and that's where all the ones who wanted work would go. And then those who wanted to hire somebody would go to that one spot, and whoever was there, they would negotiate a price. And there was a common value for a day's work. And a day for them, a day's labor, was from dawn to dusk. But they set it at 6 o'clock to 6 o'clock at night, 12-hour day. So this landowner went out. He wanted to have some work done in his vineyard. And so he went to this place where the workers were, and he went 6 o'clock in the morning. He was, wanted to get really at it. And he asked everybody that was there, you want a job? Yes, we want a job. We want to, we want to, we want to work. Then you can work for me in, in my vineyard, and I will give you the common day's wage. And they all agreed to it. And so off he took them into his vineyard to work. But he still needed more workers. So he went back at 9 in the morning, just three hours later. And there were some people standing there, and he said, hey, would you like to work for me? And they said, yeah, we'd like to. He says, well, I'll tell you what, whatever is fair at the end of the day, that's what I'll give you. And they said, okay, we'll trust you. 
And off they went to work in his vineyard. He repeated that at noon, at 3 o'clock, and at 5 o'clock, he just wanted one more push to get the work done that he wanted done. So he went back out there to the, this, this place for workers, and he found some people standing there at 5 o'clock. One more hour in the workday. And he said, why are you standing here idle? And they said, well, no one hired us. Well, they weren't there at 3 o'clock. But somewhere between 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock, they decided they'd like to, to work. And so they came prepared to work. And so he said, well, would you like to come and work in my field? And I'll give you what's fair at the end of the day. And they said, yes. And so they made a choice. I want to work. So off they went. Finished that hour. And God had instructed Israel that at the end of each workday, they were supposed to pay their laborers. And so at 6 o'clock, payday came. And the landowner said, I want you to pay them from the last one that was hired to the very first. So the ones who came at 5 o'clock, and they were expecting just a little, little bit, token, they received a full day's wage. <sighs> they were so excited. What a generous guy this is. Oh, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I got a full day's worth of pay for an hour's worth of work. Hallelujah, I didn't earn it. It's a gift. One who came at 3 o'clock got the same. 12 o'clock got the same. One who came at 9 o'clock in the morning got the same. Well, now the ones that were there from 6 o'clock at the very start, they're thinking to themselves, hey, hey, this is pretty good. They only work part of the day. We worked the whole day. We earned our money. So he's going to be generous with us and give us more than we earned. And when they stepped up to the payroll, they got one day's worth of work. Wages. And now the greed in their own heart came to the surface and they said, hey, that's not fair. In verse 12, 20 verse 12, it says, saying these, these last men have worked only one hour and you made them equal with us. You made them what? Equal with us. Who have bore the burden of the heat and the day. Now the landowner says, no, wait a minute, friend. Did you agree to work for a whole... Uh, for that amount of money the whole day? Yeah, we did. Well, then, is, am I wrong because I want to be generous to these other guys who uh, take what you've earned and go your way? And then he makes this statement. So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. Well, when we look at this, we notice that there is a definite connection between the reward and the work. We also recognize that the reward was the same for everybody, no matter how much they worked. So it's hard to say that the more you work, the more you got. This parable dispels that. So in order to understand what Jesus is talking about, we have to understand what the work was. Now, what is this work that God calls every man to do? It's a work. It's a work that no one else can do but the individual. So it's an individual work. 
What is it? Well, if you go back to our, our scripture reading, Jesus pictures himself at the door. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears and opens the door. So this work in this text is to open your heart's door. Now, how do you open your heart's door? Joshua 24, 15 says it a different way. It boils it down to a choice. And remember, the angels in heaven had a choice. Choose you this day who you will serve. James puts it a little different way. Because you can look at this word choose and say, well, that's a passive thing. I, I, yeah, I choose that. Yeah, I choose that. But James makes it so that there's no mistake. James 4, 7 says, Therefore, submit yourself to God. Submit is not a passive word. Submit is an active word. When you choose God, you have to submit to God. You can't do one without the other. And when you submit to God, you are now willing to do whatever he asks you to do. All you're waiting for is a little direction. You're there ready to do it. You have chosen to do that. Well, if that's my work, there's got to be something more than that. If that's my work, what's God's work? My work is to choose to submit. God's work is found in Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in us to what? Will and do of his good pleasure. Who does the willing? Who does the doing? Then why are you getting credit for it? This is one of our problems as Christians. Is that we try to do God's work. We can't. So we get frustrated. So a Christian's life goes up. Oh, I'm doing the work of God. I'm doing my own work, I should say. I'm doing the work to please God. That's what I'm doing. And all of a sudden you run into a problem and you fail and you fall down. You say, oh, I'm, 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 I'm a failure. You are. You're a failure. And then you go fall on your knees again and you submit yourself to God and God starts to bless you. And you start to say, see, I'm doing this on my own. I'm doing pretty good. And all of a sudden you fall again. The life of a Christian like that is up and down, up and down, up and down, and up and down, and it's a miserable existence. No joy, no contentment, no peace. When all God asks you to do is to choose to submit your will to God then who does everything else? Well, what does the Bible tell us? God does. So then why am I getting credit for being good? I don't. Well, then how does God measure me? How does he know if I'm worthy of the reward? You ask that question because you don't know what the reward is. 
our reward is still caught up in this desire to have things. We want more things. That's not a value to God. Numbers are not important. Life is important to Him. So what is this value? I want to come back to that before I answer that other question. What is the reward? Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, the reward that God offers you and I that we don't deserve is to be intimately connected with Him forever and always. John 17 is is Jesus' prayer that He would be in us, the Father would be in Him, and that we would be one. The greatest reward of all time is to be intimate with the Creator. And yet how many of us value that Jesus says, I've given you one day and seven so you can spend this time with me. It's called the Sabbath. Put aside all your other stuff. You spend that day with me. We'll get in, you'll get a lot of practice in spending that day with me forever. Intimately. And we're all caught up in the do's and the don'ts. You can't do that on Sabbath. You can't do that on Sabbath. You you better do that on Sabbath. And we're so caught up with the things that we've lost the whole purpose of the Sabbath. Intimate relationship with our God. Oh, we'll argue about the day. We, we, Sabbath isn't the seventh day. But every Christian who goes to the Bible and embraces the Bible as the authority cannot argue away the fact that the Bible said that the seventh day is the Sabbath. We don't have to argue that. The problem is that we, when we start an argument, haven't experienced the joy of God's presence because what we would really should do is be sharing with people how valuable that Sabbath is as an intimate relationship with God and that relationship will draw them to the Sabbath. Not a number. If you don't have the love of God, you don't have a love for His law. But if you have a love for God, if you're responding to the love that God is putting out in your heart, you're automatically going to grab hold of the law and say, I want to do this. Why? Because God works in you to will and to do. Did you know it's impossible to submit your life to Christ without starting to keep the commandments immediately? Do you know that? Because the God's law and His love are intimate. They can't be separated. So when you embrace God's love, you embrace His law. You may not know everything about God's law, and God says in times of ignorance, I'm going to wink at it, but as I show you more of my law, I'll put more of my spirit upon you, and you'll have greater desire to do it, and then I'll equip you to do it. Do you know the reason why we struggle as Christians? Because we try to do God's work when we should be doing our work. What is our work? To choose and to submit. What is God's work? 
everything else. So when we run into a dilemma and we say, oh, I just don't know. I, I need to pray about this because should I, and the Bible's clear on what you should do. Why should I, should I do this or should I not? What am I really struggling over? Surrender. Submission. Choosing. But I want to tell you, friends, if we do our work, God's going to do His work. But if we don't do our work, God cannot do His work. We will fail miserably until we do our work. But when we do our work, God's promised He's going to do our, His work. He's even guaranteed it. Amen. He said, I'm going to finish the work I've begun in you. And I'm going to keep doing that work until Jesus comes and puts away to sin forever. And then I'm bringing this reward of eternal connectivity with me into your heart. Did you know he gives us that reward on the installment plan right here on this earth? We submit to God, God comes in. He pushes us a little bit more. We submit to God. God comes in a little bit more. And that process continues until there's nothing more to give God. He's got it all. And then when Jesus comes, He says, I'm going to put away the sin forever from you. No more separation. We will be together forever and always. Now, if my motivation for heaven is so I can get, I'll never be there. Unless my motivation for heaven is a love for God, intertwined with His law, I won't be there. But as God pours His love out in me, Romans 5, 5, and I respond to that love, I respond to His law. And God changes me. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Who does the putting to death the deeds of the body? Spirit. Jesus looks at you and he says, I'm knocking at your heart's door. Do you hear my voice? Do you hear me calling? If you hear me calling, open the door. There's no handle on the outside. I can't force my way in. Handle's on the inside. You got to open it. But if you open it, I promise I will come in intimately into your life. And if you do, great is your reward. Now, friends, I don't know where you are in your thoughts. I don't know where you are in in, in, your, in your understanding, but I know this. You have an opportunity to choose tonight. And I want to invite you in the quietness of your own heart. If you choose God, just say, yeah, Lord, that's me. I'm giving you my all. Right there, I'm not trying to fix anything. I'm just going to give it to you the way it is, and I'll let you work this out in me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know our hearts.
We could raise our hands, but you follow that all the way down to our hearts anyways, and you see us. You know every single person in this auditorium. You know every person who can hear the sound of my voice, whether it's streaming or radio. And Lord, right now, I know you're offering them the invitation. You're standing at their heart's door, and Lord, if, if they'll open it, your promise is that you'll come in. So I want to thank you for it. I want to thank you for the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, our guide. Father, I want to thank you for loving us so much that you gave Jesus to die for us. Thank you for that love, and Lord, we want to respond to that love. We want to demonstrate it through our obedience to you, not because we have to, but because we want to please you. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this tonight. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.